This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, you can send us a text at 2057. Email me at inbox at rallycheck.radio. Well, here's a thing for the etiquette books and the law library, isn't it? Like this whole thing about gendering someone correctly with their pronouns. And we had the case earlier this year where a teacher had a 14-year-old girl transitioning to a boy uh, refused to address her by his name. I'm trying to work that through. And use the correct uh, pronoun. Accordingly, left the school and indeed got kicked out for gross misconduct uh, from the teaching profession. Now, to help us through all of this, we have Free Speech Union Chief Executive Officer Jonathan Ayling, who is doing wonderful work in trying to preserve free speech, but also not afraid to step into these thorny issues. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Rodney. Well, I'm going to enjoy this because I don't know the answer. Um, but first up, tell me a little bit about the Free Speech Union, a little bit about you, and then we'll get into this particular one. So tell us, first of all, about the Free Speech Union. Well, the Free Speech Union is uh, the largest organization in the country dedicating uh, a lot of work, a lot of service to preserving the right uh, to speak freely for intellectual inquiry, academic freedom in our universities, uh, the role of the fourth estate, and, and freedom of conscience and belief. And so we believe that uh, societies prosper when people are free. And at the moment, uh, we think that uh, forces within our culture and within our law and international forces as well uh, are, are formulated in such a way that uh, the, the rights that we've taken for granted for many, many decades in New Zealand uh, is, is, I was going to say, slowly being eroded, but it's actually picking up some pace now. And mm. the fight for freedom of speech does mean at times you have to defend uh, the scoundrel or the scallywag in our midst because, you know what, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If I get to express my very erudite and well-considered and, of course, correct positions, well, yes. we've got to let others put forward their incorrect positions as well. I Say that facetiously, of course, because while all of us speak thinking we are right, uh, how do we know? It's because we have a marketplace of ideas. We engage with one another, hopefully with respect and civility. But that's, to be honest, I don't think we want to make that a precondition. I think if if sometimes we want to voice outrage with disrespect at some ideas because they are very disrespectful ideas, we should be allowed to do that as well. But but there is a very bright line when it comes to free speech that we have only ever insisted on, and that is that free speech by no means allows for incitement to violence. Violence is is, is is not simply a bridge too far for free speech. That's not the case at all. Violence is the antithesis of free speech. Free speech is about using reason and relationship and dialogue and discourse to maybe not convince each other, but to at least create a society where we can cohabitate peacefully and non-violently. Uh, violence is about imposing with force on one another uh, the, our ways of thinking. And, and Rodney, I think we need to keep in mind, and I hope your listeners remember this as well, that free speech historically is a, is 
is the exception, not the rule. Really, in terms of the, the, the breadth of human history, it is the anomaly where societies can live without incredible violence or incredible groupthink. And, it's, uh, quite, and it's, it's quite extraordinary to recall that in the founding of the United States of America, that free speech and freedom of religion was hard fought for. Hard fought for, and the very first of their uh, Bill of Rights. That, yes. that, that it is, it is it, in many ways, it is the foundation on which that republic, but I would say liberal democracy in general, is founded. And and I have a you you asked my background a little bit as well. I think I have a personal uh, insight into this, give, given where I've grown up and the experiences I've had. I, I, I grew up where my, my parents were humanitarian workers in Mozambique. And so Mozambique was the poorest country in the world when my parents moved there in the late 90s. And it, it had just come out of a absolutely devastating, horrific uh, two decades of civil war. And, and I remember growing up in that space as a very young boy uh, through to when I moved to New Zealand at 18, around people who were intelligent, hardworking, engaged people. But free speech opens people's minds. It, it, it enables us to conceive of ideas and express them that otherwise we would never imagine. And when we shut down free speech, it it, it is just... It, it douses human ingenuity. It douses the the, the most uh, beautiful and innovative parts of humanity. I would say, and and so that's why I I have a, a, a an absolute passion for civil rights and human rights. Uh, but I think both our the civil rights that we take for granted in a liberal democratic society and the human rights framework that we have uh, in our modern era are both founded on the freedom to think and the freedom to express our thoughts freely. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, I've engaged with uh, Paul Hunt, the Chief Human Rights Commissioner, in, in, a, in a wide variety of settings. We, we've, we've done public events together and that kind of thing. And he and I disagree quite strongly on this matter. He thinks that no uh, no human rights, no civil liberty is, is more important than the other. And I say, Paul, that's nonsense. You can't build a framework like this unless you have a foundation. And the foundation is the belief that individuals, not, not groups, not collectives, not identities, but individuals get to decide what they think within themselves and they get to express that. So that's how we, we have a reinforcing, self-reinforcing collection between freedom of conscience and belief and freedom of speech. You cannot have one without the other. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you, what I'd, colloquial call the left have taken over the rights language so wonderfully and made it a right to a house or to a job or to a decent standard of living whereas the original conception for uh, to free everyone from tyranny was recognized as being on the basis of the individual that's right that you could not have the enlightenment yep you could not have a you could not have a collectivist right and that your right had to be a duty that would be imposed on everyone else. So if I have a right to life, you have a duty not to kill me. That's now, right. when you say someone has a right to a house, you're then asking and putting the duty upon who? It has to be upon someone. And then, of course, they lose their right to their labor. And so it becomes, when you're talking to Paul Hunt, 
it becomes an incoherent mess and they resort to a word soup to try and get them through because I, they haven't got the basic foundation that rights have to be individualist. That, that Absolutely right, Rodney, that, that rights are founded on the agency of the individual and the enlightenment was founded on the belief of the dignity and the power and the value of the individual. I, I, I would also, I don't want to get into the technicality of, of human rights law, but, but uh, just briefly, this is what we talk about when we say positive rights versus negative rights. Mm. And, and, and these are very different concepts. Free speech is what's called a negative right. And by, by that, I don't mean it's a bad thing. It's a negative right in that you are free to from from not being stopped speaking you know yes. but you it's, it's not a positive right it's not a positive right you don't you can't demand other people listen to you no. um and so you, you can't demand other people other people give you a house you can't demand other people provide you but but you you can demand that they don't kill you that you can mm -hmm. demand that they don't um stop you from worshiping in certain ways and so these are the, the distinctions between positive and negative rights and when when the modern human rights frameworks began to emerge uh they emerged primarily as negative rights and since then they've taken on a life of their own which i think has bred some um discontent and resentments among uh, rational thinking people because they see that there's abuse occurring here and 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 the free speech union is very careful we do not take uh positions on the substance of matters we are not politically aligned in any way we have a wide variety of individuals from the left and the right from progressives and conservatives at our table uh but but we work that everyone has the freedom to not be silenced because of how provocative or seemingly uh unconventional their thoughts are we get to this position on free speech of the incitement to violence. And of course, on that proviso hangs a whole multitude of degrees. And I had forgotten the argument in favor of free speech because I never felt the need to resort <laughs> to the argument, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I went back and I read uh, John Stuart Mill, his famous chapter on free speech on, and on liberty, which is, I think, where we all go. Um, Certainly in the uh, in the West, that's where we go. Yeah. Uh, Jacob Inshangama is a free speech historian, and he shows that free speech has emerged in many cultures across oh, the world. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. and, and, and so you look at um, the Indian Raj or the the Arab caliphs or, or d d different cultures across across millennium really that have all resorted to this perennially radical idea that people should be free to speak freely and you look at what happened in the Indian subcontinent at that point or in the Middle East and in, in what when Europe was in the dark ages and uh, and you see that free speech brings prosperity it brings stability but you're absolutely right in Europe and in the West we go to John Stuart Mills largely for for yeah. our foundation of Free speech. I had not appreciated that other cultures and other times had established free speech. But now that you mention about it, you couldn't have had the flowering of science, maths, technology, uh, freedom without it. It That's had to right. be the basis of those um, civilizations, and including, of course, the Greeks. Uh, and the of, Romans. Of course, that's right. Um, so it is a wonderful thought that I'm so, what's that word, uh, Eurocentric or Western-centric, that it just occurred to me um, 
that's a wonderful point. You've you've really opened well, my eyes it, to it, that. It, it's it's an important one that that uh, I, I take pleasure in reminding people because, of course, one of the uh, accusations that we face is oh, only only straight white privileged men care about free speech because yes. really free speech is a is a club to beat down the marginalized and the vulnerable and. On the contrary, my dedication to free speech is because no one benefits more from free speech than the vulnerable and Absolutely. the marginalized. You know, I, I was presenting uh, to the police leadership forum uh, two weeks ago, the, the top 40 cops in the country, and we were we had about an hour discussion on, on free speech. I was there uh, especially to discuss the Posey Parker affair with them and concerns we had about police engagement. But this was an important part that, that we wanted to really focus in on is, is that it, let's for a moment accept the assumptions that maybe the woke would uh would put out that as a straight white wealthy man i i have um innate privilege that insulates me from the hardships of life e- accepting for a moment that that is true and i think some of your listeners would have st- a strong contestation with that uh isn't that an argument for free speech because then if if we if we put through hate speech laws or if we put through other legal means that erode free speech I, it's okay. I'm a straight, white, wealthy man. Yes, I've got course. power. I don't need free speech. No. I could just bang my fist on the table. It's the ones that don't have power. It's the ones that don't have privilege that are really upheld by this belief that everyone should be able to speak freely. If we start to strike at the cultural cornerstone that, that, that at the moment says everyone should be allowed to speak freely, if we strike away at that, it is the vulnerable at the moment. We might imagine it's a it's a it's a moldy lesbian woman, you know. Uh she's the one who, according to that narrative, doesn't have power, doesn't have privilege, and so she will be the one that suffers. And so I think we need to uh, it's interesting you say you hadn't had to put forward the argument for free speech in some time. And I think New Zealand, we recently conducted polling. It showed that uh, 55% of Kiwis have heard of the work of the free speech union. A majority of them support it. Uh, and, and 75% of Kiwis think that free speech is a cultural cornerstone, a, a value that is embedded in who we are as Kiwis. But a majority also thought it was under threat. And so that's why, Rodney, we need to get better at making this case again, oh, yes. reminding people why we believe in this. If we, I want to pick up on two points, and it's just the margin. It's this um, incitement to violence. And just to think ahead, it's this, for want of a better word, postmodernist idea that speech itself is violent and inherent, and inherently oppressive. And it's, you know, people like yourself and me uh, oppressing people through our speech just by virtually of having this conversation. But if we go back to John Stuart Mill's originally original formulation, he drew the line like a good uh, libertarian would, uh, that you can wave your hand around until it hits someone on the nose, and you can speak freely until it effectively hits someone on the nose. But he was very careful. Correct me if I've got this wrong, because I believe this was him. That I could stand up in a hall and say these rich capitalists should have their houses burnt down and they all be hung because that's not directly inciting violence on a particular person. The argument had to be much closer proximally to the violence, which is to say 
I've got a bloodthirsty mob who are outside your house screaming, and I stand up there and say, let's lynch Jonathan because he is a rich capitalist robbing us blind and we all the mob pours through the door and lynch you or i get arrested before that happens and i am guilty of incitement to violence so his conception of incitement to violence wasn't just you can never do it but it had to be What's the word I'm looking for? It had to be proximal. It had to be like a, 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 an immediate thing because he recognized that otherwise you haven't got free speech. That, that, that's right. And, and and John Stuart Mills was writing from a philosophical perspective. Yes. And in and, and, and free speech, we're, we're constantly working between the philosophy of free speech. So that's the, you know, those of us that are paid to kick our feet back sometimes and, and think for a day, but but also the, the legal aspect of it. And, and those two are, are associated, but not the same. That perspective has also been confirmed in the jurisprudence that has comes out comes out of the Supreme Court uh, in the United States, where there, there are a, a, a criteria. There's a test for what incitement to violence really means, and and you're absolutely right, Rodney. It relates to uh, both the immediacy or the proximity to to actually uh, in that moment being able to achieve that uh, violence, and a direct connection between those words and the actions you take or someone else takes, uh, and. and and also the capacity to, uh, to 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 outwork that violence, and and this is why. And and I don't know if you will agree. Certainly, I don't think some of your listeners will agree. At the Free Speech Union, we were not popular for arguing this earlier in the year. But you will recall the Tusiata Avia poem that mm-hmm. that uh, came around. It was about six months ago uh, now, I think. And and uh, uh, others uh, out there, the likes of Sean Plunkett, were, were very concerned by this poem. And, and even some supporters and donors of the Free Speech Union said, this is incitement to violence. No. And we said, nonsense. Mm. Uh, I, 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 I started to listen to it, and I found it despicable i found it disgusting i didn't finish listening to the the relatively short poem because i found it to be um really horrible ideas and that's the thing free speech allows you to express really horrible ideas but there's this notion that in reality tusiata avia's poem was going to result in maori women driving around the country running (laughs) over white men what was exactly laughable uh and 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 I think we need to be careful because it's our opponents who don't like free speech, who are constantly trying to overburden this notion of violence. We mustn't fall into the same trap. Well, the thing is, it may well lead to that, but that's not a reason to give up on free speech. And, of course, there's plenty of times when um, a call to arms, uh, even from the citizenry, historically, has been necessary and justified um over and over again and so you're absolutely right we have to be um careful and the thing is about free speech is it doesn't help if you drive it underground that's right and it's far far better to have it out in the open for everyone to see and for it to be mocked and ridiculed than make it sort of attractive to young and influential minds by making it somehow illicit. 
Um, also, too, the beautiful thing about free speech is it tells you about people. So we learned a lot about that poet, mm-hmm. didn't we? You know, we we, right. we 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 learned what we thought of her and her ideas by allowing her the freedom to express herself. Um, I'm amazed how much I have, just on the basis of politeness, uh, inhibited my speech in company compared to where I was 20, 30 years ago. And I can remember, you know, you'd sit around a university common room and you'd just, we used, used to have that phrase, shoot the shit, right? And you'd, people would come up with the craziest ideas, same in politics, you'd be shooting the shit and no one would be held to account for what they said. And you'd say, no, 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 that's stupid. But you had this utter freedom to express the first thought in your head without ever being held to account for it because you were having this free flow of ideas. No, no, no one would be declared stupid for coming up with a stupid idea. It was part of that free ranging. And it's so wonderful. I don't believe that happens any longer because everywhere you go, you are checking yourself. Now, this isn't a legal thing. This is just, you know, you're, you're, you're not wanting to offend. And as soon as you find yourself in that place where you can't say something crazy about religion or crazy about, you know, tell a joke um, um, without offending someone, I mean, it's just we had a clear view that if you took offense, the problem was you, not the person who said it. And, and and this is this is an incredible shift that has occurred over the past generation or two, and so uh, part of me aspires to how, how wonderful and liberated does that sound, and and yet I also I'm I'm glad our society as a whole doesn't function on that way, and 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 this is where and and I don't want to talk out of both sides of my mouth in this moment, but but this is where I I, I dedicate my life to defending individuals' rights to freedom, even those I disagree with. Often I spend an enormous amount of effort and time defending those whose speech I fundamentally oppose. That being said, just because I absolutely believe in the right to freedom doesn't mean I think we should always exercise that right. Now, the, the individual should be the one at their discretion to use to choose when or not to use that freedom it is not the role of the state to say and in this context you can speak freely and in this context you can't neither the state or nor the academia nor nor culture nor media it is the role of the individual to to try and create a structure in our lives that help us understand when i'm sitting at the pub with my mate and having a few beers you have a little a little bit more social latitude to to operate within than mm. when I am with with my grandma or in, in company that I don't know or individuals who are perhaps more inclined to take offense. Uh, I, I agree, offense is taken, not given. Mm. But that being said, we should operate understanding who is more likely to take offense and and take that into account at sometimes. Self-censorship is a major issue in our culture and 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 in the Anglosphere and across the West largely. But that being said, I don't want to advocate that we should never self-censor. Uh and 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 this 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 may or may not sit well with with uh some of those that are listening in the conversation. But I think without a moral framework, without a value framework that we la- we, we we increasingly despise and uh and and denigrate uh 
we, we don't have a way to, as a whole, as a society, operate with a common set of values that tells us in what context certain behaviour might be acceptable or unacceptable. And and I think the, the, uh, you mentioned postmodernism earlier. Postmodernism, thank you, Michel Foucault, uh, has 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 led to this relativistic perspective, this post-truth environment. And I think that is at the root of much of the polarization, much of the um, the uh, lack of social cohesion that is emerging. We have lost the Absolutely. ability for us to hold the common value structure. And with that, how do we talk to each other anymore? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I'm always in favor of etiquette and good manners. And that means being aware. By the way, I was reflecting on you're too young, but listeners will remember this. There used to be a wonderful thing called the public bar in a New Zealand pub. And it was basically not for women. So men would go there after work, and it was all men in their working clothes. And the funny thing is, I've always enjoyed women's company more than men's. But I used to love going into the men's bar with men after work and drinking. What a raucous, <laughs> mad place it was. The air would be blue. There might be the odd scuffle. Um, it was huge fun, and there wasn't a woman to be seen. And this, of course, was seen to be sexist, to exclude women. And looking back on it, it just served this wonderful social function because actually it was respectful of women, right? Because men wouldn't behave like that if there was a woman present. And the men let off steam and everyone had a good time and the ladies remained ladies. And at the start of this whole postmodernist movement, those men's spaces had to be banned, just like now we're sort of doing away with women's spaces. And it was sort of toxic masculinity. But I look back to it and I think that was actually a wonderful institution for men to be men and 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 um and to respect women. Um, and that was your point about being mindful of the space because the air would turn blue. But when you moved into the family part or the female part, everyone was just so polite. And I love that stuff. You know, it was just so liberating. Now, a couple of things. Rodney, th th you're you're underpinning a uh, a perspective of an age gone by, and and you're right. Uh, my my generation can't relate to that, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll take your recount of it at face value. Uh, what you're referencing though is is a, there is a very binary view of the world of, of men and women, right? And 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 we as a, as a society, and certainly in my generation, we are increasingly rejecting that. And I'll leave that up to others to decide whether that's right or, well, or not. Well, we're coming into that right now aren't we that, that, that's right and and and, and this is uh, will i'll reference a, a petition that the free speech is running here can i bring you into this just just before you do that i want to explain me because um and then you can come to this free speech so when i was in parliament i would meet transvestites 
on a regular basis. And I knew Georgina Byer to begin with not well, but later on very, very well, um, because we used to do charity dances together. And I'm always respectful of the individual. So if she wanted to be called Georgina, I would happily call her Georgina and did so. If she wanted to be called Miss Georgina Byer, I would have done so. I don't recall ever having to do that. I just called her Georgina. But now this issue has become front and center of the cultural war or wars, and you're feeling obligated to take a position over and over and over again and to think much more deeply about it and to realize that you're being confronted and ideologically pigeonholed to play a certain way because of etiquette and manners. So here we come to the case. Let's say this nowadays. I'm a teacher. I have a 14-year-old girl in my class who decides she wants to be a boy. Now, 20 years ago, I would have gone along with it. Not now. Because I'd say, someone needs to tell this young girl she can't. Now, where is this on the free speech spectrum? Because in a funny way, I own my name. I own my how I want to be addressed. But given your point, I can't demand that you use my name. However, we're in an institution. It might be a, 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 a government department. It might be a, a commercial business. It might be a school. 14-year-old girl wants to have a boy's name and be addressed as a boy. How do you address that? And what are you doing about that? Because this is what we have you on for. Rodney, this is a very complex issue, and uh, our, our opponents have been very quick to lambast us effectively as neo-Nazis for daring to take a position that isn't, in every case, in every moment, a child who wants to be referred to by another pronoun should have their wishes entirely uh, accepted. Forgive me, I think it's slightly more complex than that. And I, but, but, but I don't want to pretend it's a simplistic, anyone should be free to say anything, anytime, anywhere type thing either. So, so forgive me as I work through this. I don't want Please. to be milly mouthed, but I want your listeners to Jacob and Shangama, again, the, the Danish free speech historian who's done incredible work uh, recently advocating globally for sp free speech says that free speech presupposes listening. You, 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 you cannot simply impose silence and call it tolerance and and so that's that's where um your, your listeners may uh, undoubtedly will have very strong opinions on the subject good on them they have every right to hold those but hopefully we can listen to the other side as well and 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 our team has reflected very long on this issue you uh, as you referenced uh, it was several months ago now that the the t teacher was first deregistered by the teaching council for refusing to use the preferred pronouns of the student Students. And that that prompted a lot of debate in our team, and we've spent some time deciding how to respond to that. And and ultimately, we've we've come to the position that uh, 
bureaucrats and activists at a national level should not be deciding how teachers refer to students because that is it's, it's entirely devoid of context and of the nuance and of the sensitivity of the question at play and and when when we're dealing especially with with teenagers in high school a lot of things are very sensitive um but especially as it comes to identities where these people on on questions of gender sure but but on a question of a host of other issues as well they're deciding who they're going to be in life they're deciding where they're going to go and let's not pretend i think it's 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 childish to pretend that that teenagers always know the answer straight away or they always get it right. Often they try something on and then they might do something else. And, and again, uh, uh, perhaps that's gender, but I mean on a no number of other things as well. Uh, we decide what, what friend groups we want to be part of. We decide what subjects we're interested in. We decide w which directions we want to pursue in life. And, and I want our young people to have the freedom to, to, to consider something and then decide actually maybe not. And so there needs to be give and take in that. And, and, Parents, especially our strong, our society needs strong parents engaged in their children's lives. That is primary. But then their teachers and their principal uh, are those that are best placed to navigate that with them and 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 decide where they, you know with them where they're going. It's not the role of uh, Leslie Hoskin at the, at the chief executive of the of the of the teaching council or bureaucrats there or activists that are trying to push put pressure on the teaching council like Inside Out to say every teacher must refer to every student who wants to be called non by by, by non biological pronouns whenever they wish. I, I would say that it is a question of compelled speech as well. And you're, Rodney, you're right. We, we've come to say an individual has a right to be called by the name. You know, we choose the name that we want. And, and I can't really imagine situations where there's, there's a, a strong argument to not use the name someone would want. Mm. Not least because of what you said already about being polite and, and courtesy. Um, and, 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 and also, we already accept that within society that that my name is Jonathan. A lot of people call me Johnny. Um, my 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 name in Kenya was Kamal. So I mean, it doesn't matter if now I introduce myself as Kamal. But but what what is interesting, Rodney, with the whole preferred pronoun thing? And and you know what? As we've discussed this with our supporters, a lot of a lot of people don't actually know what we're talking about because they're, they're not encountering this. So so what I mean by that is we we you you've addressed it already. We're a we're a fourteen year old individual who's biologically a female. Goes I identify as 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 a boy now. I want to be called he him. Uh, so these are the preferred pronouns. They, they may look like a girl. They may not. But they are biologically a girl, and they want to be referred to as a boy what's interesting about pronouns and i don't want to I, I i've i've studied six languages i find languages fascinating i love considering how people communicate so uh but but i won't try and get into the gr grammatical nerdiness of this but the thing about pronouns is they're third person pronouns so so I is first person pronoun. You is first second person pronoun, and and neither of those are gendered in any way. Mm. It's only once we get to third person pronouns when when Rodney and Jonathan are talking about Sam that we start we start to use he or she, and so this isn't really a question of how the students will be referred to to their face. It's oh, always good a, point. It's a question of how they're referred to when they're not there.
Mm. When, when it, or, or maybe they are there, but someone's not talking directly to them. They're talking about them. So it's the definition of compelled speech. It is saying I am she, her, even though biologically I am he, him. And a lot of a lot of teachers from across the ideological perspective. Now, our, again, our opponents would try and lump them all as neo-Nazi transphobes who are trying to commit genocide. Th- this is just, it's, well, it, it would be laughable if it wasn't so egregious. We represent people from across the political spectrum. And again, conservatives, progressives, a a host of different uh, perspectives that agree that we need to have a more fulsome conversation around transgenderism and the language that relates to transgenderism. And so we're suggesting that uh, in a school, if, if a principal and a teacher want to create a standard where they will require the use of preferred pronouns. There's a space for representation there. A teacher may disagree with that, but they can they can talk with the board of trustees. They can talk with the principal. These will be people that they have relationship with. There's a way to navigate that. And at the end of the day, if a majority of teachers and a principal decide that preferred pronouns should be used or shouldn't be used and other teachers disagree, they could go to a different school. What is at stake with the teaching council getting involved with the threat of deregistration, which is what a lot of activists want to be the cost, is that if, like with this teacher, if you refuse to use the preferred pronoun in one situation with one student in one school, you may never be allowed to teach anywhere ever again. And that's what's happened to this teacher who was deregistered. Look, we had concerns around the way the teacher in question two months ago conducted himself. We think he could have done it a lot more constructively with with, with consideration to where others were coming from, and he would have helped his case and ours. But that being said, the decision to deregister him was simply punitive. I think it was gross, gross misconduct, wasn't it? Well, that, that's what they say it was, yes. Mm. And, and so they deregistered him on, on account of that. And it, it'll always be wording like that because it comes down to breaking the code, the code mm. of conduct that, that requires you to be respectful and treat treat students with, you know, with safety. Um, th- these are important terms, but they are ambiguous. They are they are vague. And so then uh, the, the, the council and the, the tribunal that reviewed his case decided that he had breached the code for gross misconduct, but it was because of the way he conducted himself before the tribunal when he refused to use these preferred pronouns. And he could have got, he had already resigned from the school in question. He could have gone to another school, perhaps a special character school, where they choose not to use preferred pronouns. What this has done, though, is set a precedent and embolden those who go every teacher in every classroom should call every student who wants to be referred to by a preferred pronoun as the preferred pronoun that they wish to be called by. And that is simply an incorrect standard that threatens to force some teachers to choose between an ideological political position and engaging in the profession that they have trained for. And look, Rodney, in a, in a, in a society where we don't have teachers to be casting out, we you know, with class size and, and the, the situation that our education system is in, is this really the issue we want to be fighting on? Is this really the issue we want to be expelling teachers on? 
And it's it's prompted a conversation at the FSU about these professional oversight bodies that exist. So teachers have the teaching council. Of course, your listeners may be familiar. We're representing several uh, medical professionals at the moment who have been deregistered or, or are threatened with deregistration by the nursing council, for example. Lawyers have the law society. There are these professional oversight bodies that are increasingly captured by would-be censors who want to weaponize codes of conduct to silence their opponents on ideological or political issues. And we are simply saying, let we'll let others decide uh, the, 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 the veracity of the response to COVID or the response to transgenderism, but don't you dare try and shut down the debate. Because keeping it local to the people that are directly involved always allows compromise. That's right. And so if you force it or allow it, that's a better way of saying it, if you allow it to occur with the principal, with the board, with the parents, with the teacher, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, 999 times out of 1,000, you will give a little bit and you'll reach a satisfactory position. Why? Because you know each other and you're talking. It's facilitated by relationship. Yes. And, and and as soon as we, we resort to abstractions of mm. this this distant institution that is the teaching council that's overseeing this this teacher who has an identity number and they don't really yes. know who it is, all we have to do is resort to our, our ideological positions. But when you're sitting across from your principal who, who hired you five years ago and supported you through a rough spat in your marriage or, or whatever it is, You've got some give and take. And and if we want social cohesion in our society, relationship is what will get us there. Give and take is what will get us there. And that gets us to your petition. So please tell us about your petition. Well, we're calling on the teaching council to maintain discretion for teachers and principals in schools. And and what this may mean is there are some schools who say if your child comes here and they want to be referred to by a preferred pronoun, we absolutely will do that. And in other cases, they may say in certain classrooms or certain teachers, we will not. But that's because there will be compromise, there will be dialogue, there will be give and take. And and I encourage those who think that we are being transphobes and and, and that this will only go away and it will only result in students not being referred to by their preferred pronouns, which which is in reality to say students not being allowed to express themselves and who they truly fully are. I encourage them to think, put the shoe on the other foot. Because th- those who are, who uh, disagree with preferred pronouns may see oh, the Green Party could get into government and say every school must use preferred, pro- preferred pronouns and mandate it through the teaching council. But what happens if New Zealand First gets into government mm. and New Zealand First says no schools should be allowed to use preferred mm. pronouns, only biological pronouns will be used? That would be just as much a free speech issue for us as well. If if a teacher and a principal and a student decide that a non-biological pronoun is the correct one to use, then they should be free to do that with, with, with parents involved as well. But but what, what we are saying is stop with the ideology. Come, come down to a local level where dialogue and free speech and exchange can occur. And so for those that think we are just being transphobes, just wait until the shoe's on the other foot. And this is this is what we say at every point with censorship. 
You, you like the idea of hate speech laws? Well, maybe at the moment while you get to write them, but just wait until you've chopped down this cultural value of free speech and some and a, and a Trumpian populist comes in and gets to rewrite those laws. How do you think it's going to fly then? And so that's why we've got this petition running. Your listeners can, uh, can go to fsu.nz and in our top bar there, there's an option to click on preferred pronouns petition. fsu.nz is our website. You can click on preferred pronouns petition and sign us uh, sign our petition where with that of over 5,000 Kiwis in, in the first 24 hours signed our petition call from from a variety of perspectives calling on the teaching council to let teachers and principals decide and, and at, at the basic level we believe that teachers and principals in concert with parents know how to treat students better than activists and bureaucrats lobbying the teaching council. And so we we say, let people be free to know what to say. I, uh, you're on Rally Tech Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to the wonderful Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union. We're talking about, I guess, let civil society operate to solve vexed issues rather than have a central dictate uh, emanating out of uh, Wellington, which means uh, oftentimes these days emanating out of the loudest voice in in the room. The other thing that you draw our attention to, which can be readily forgotten in all of this, Jonathan, is how free speech is not just inexplicably tied in with the rights of the individual, but the rights to the individual of private property. Because free speech is always taking place somewhere, right? And you and I, and this can be forgotten, can't it? Because this is the nature of a school or my house. So in my house, I can be the little totalitarian, can't I? That that That, that is correct. So in my house, I can decide that there will be no blasphemy, or bad language. I can decide that um, no one will speak ill you, of Jacinda Ardern. You, you, you are right, Rodney. But again, I want to draw us back to where we were uh, at the beginning of this interview, the, the, the difference between the philosophical conception of free speech and the legal conception of free speech. Yes. So certainly what you're referring to there is the legal conception of free speech, that 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 you have the legal rights to, uh, to prohibit blasphemy or, or or even to compel at the beginning of dinner everyone to say you know uh, all, all hail the leader but i would i would say reflect on the philosophical aspect of free speech as well you may have the legal right that is guaranteed by private property law to do that but but if you want to prohibit your uh, your children from blasphemy and and you threaten them with incredible punishment if they do the philosophical concept around that is you may find that free speech, the, the arguments for free speech still come into play and you're suppressing a speech that, that may actually express itself even more because you're suppressing it. And of that course. the arguments of free speech, rather than stopping it with punishment, maybe go, well, this is why I don't blaspheme. Well, these are the values and you have a dialogue and you have exchange. So you're absolutely right. Private property guarantees you a legal right, uh, but the 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 idea related to free speech still comes into play and but this is this is an interesting point is it not because <clears throat> you presumably wouldn't defend someone an atheist walking into a church 
and blaspheming and say, well, he is perfectly entitled to do that because he has a right to free speech because he doesn't have a right to the platform. Um, that, that is correct. Uh, and, and again, this is the interchange between legality and philosophy. We, we would say he doesn't have the legal right to do that. So if, if the church then asked security... Yes, I've got your him, difference. That's his okay. right. But, but but we would say to the church, is is really is punishing people or an extreme burning them on the stake for blasphemy an effective way to do it? Well, I would say history would suggest no. Yeah. And of course, um, being good Christians... Uh, we welcome the prodigal son and would show him love. Now, I've been talking with Jonathan Ayling. Uh, keep up the good work, Jonathan. Uh, I have signed your petition last night. Thank you for the opportunity. We wish you well in your work. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's been real talk with Rodney Hyde and talking with Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union. Oh, my goodness, to think that here in New Zealand we'd need a free speech union. But that's where we are. Send Thanks, Rodney. Text 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.